Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This podcast is intended to educate as well as entertain, and it has a more serious purpose. We are big supporters of the Financial Times Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, a new charity which you can check out on ft.com forward slash FLIC. It's the most disadvantaged in society who often get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans, and similar artful devices to part people with their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education. This really is a great cause, and I urge you, please, to support it. The podcast is sponsored by Sentio, and I ask them because I use the research platform almost every day. For equity analysts, it's in many respects the ideal tool. If I didn't have a professional platform, I would need several different software systems. Sentio saves me a lot of time and ensures my research can be done in one place. I like it because first, the data is reliable and it aggregates all content. Second, it's easy to use and much more intuitive than some other platforms. Third, it's features I have never seen in other systems. My favorite is the ability to go into a 10K and extract the history for a particular data table. If I want to see the trend in a parameter, and I often do this, I snap my fingers without having to dig through multiple 10Ks. It's much faster and easier. But most important is the price. There's a huge price advantage over other systems. If you're a smaller fund or even a larger fund equipping analysts, Sentio is definitely worth looking at. Visit sentio.com forward slash BTBS for behind the balance sheet for more details. Dylan Grice is probably best known as the author of Popular Delusions, a sideways look at the world of finance, and now as the co-founder of Calderwood Capital, a hedge fund specializing in orthogonal, niche, and capacity-constrained hedge fund strategies. Rob Crinian is his partner in Calderwood and was formerly the UK CEO of Renaissance Technologies, the world's most successful hedge fund. We covered a lot of ground in this longer than usual episode. Sorry, but I was so enjoying the conversation, which we recorded in person in the podcast studio here at my offices with my brilliant sound engineer, Henry, who hopefully will sort out the words from the laughter at times. We cover quants, why they have a human side and how they have a half-life, what the answer is to the end of the 60-40 portfolio, risks in China, the low-risk way to play crypto, and why being stupid has helped you make money in the last couple of years, but maybe less useful going forward. You'll tell from the laughter that we really enjoyed ourselves, and I hope you enjoy this episode too. So Dylan, Rob, um, welcome. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I always start by asking guests how they got into the industry. I don't know. Rob, do you want to go first? 
Yeah, great, great to be here, Stephen. Thanks very much for having us. And um, how did I get into the industry? I basically trained to become an academic. So I did what you typically have to do, which is a PhD. And as I approached the end of my PhD, I became rather disillusioned with academia. Um, primarily, two key reasons. One was just I didn't want to move around the country, around Europe, on constant temporary contracts. And secondly, I just felt, you know, I trained for such a long time, was writing references for young whippersnappers who were undergraduates and looking at what they were being offered by these big mega banks to start off working there. And I thought, whoa, you know, maybe I should go and try something in the real world a bit. And through a mate of mine, I met a, um, a kind of headhunter who said, oh, go off to this big German bank. They're looking for people with your background. My background was in, in statistical economics called econometrics. And um, there was this new emerging area called risk management. They said, we need guys like you. I went through a few interviews. And next thing I knew, I was being sent off to INSEAD on a crash course to learn lots about options and derivatives. Oh, <laughs> and wow. became a derivatives risk manager. What, what, and what year was that? That was 1997. And how about you, Dylan? How did you get in? Um, I mean, I stumbled into it. Oh, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I mean, I did economics as, as an undergrad and um, kind of really liked it. And I just wanted to be an economist, really. So I was setting myself up to do a PhD. And um, I came down to London. I came to do postgrad at the LSE. Um, and um, I said, all I wanted to do was a PhD, become a professor of economics and, and study study the economy. Uh, but everyone in my um, uh, kind of year was was applying to, to these banks that I'd never heard of. To me, a bank was somewhere where you'd stand up in a queue and, you know, wait till someone behind the perspex class should cash a check or whatever it was. That's that's what a bank was. You might need to explain to the younger members of the audience well, what a check I was, is. I, I was just thinking that. <laughs> As I was um, explaining it, I thought... Anyway, I also then thought that he doesn't have any younger listen, listeners, probably. So, so it Mature audience. It's a more mature audience, exactly. Um, um, uh, so anyway, they were all kind of applying. I asked, you know, who they were applying to. What, what's, a, what's an investment bank? And um, and I, I still didn't understand, but I did understand that it involved much more money than, than than academia. So I ended up just doing the same thing, applying to a bunch of these banks, and ended up getting a couple of job offers. One of which was um, was as an economist, um, and I just kind of figured, well, I can do what I wanted to do, which is study the economy. Except I'm just going to get paid more, and um, and so I, I took that job, and and um, it was actually the same German bank that that. Um, Rob was um, was hired by, although we didn't know each other at the time. It was right, remember at the same time, 97, 98. Um, and then from spending a few years trying to work out what the economy was going to do next, obviously in a bank, that's only really interesting to people if you can work out how to make money, <laughs> you know, if you can work out what the markets are, are going to do next. And so that became much more interesting. And eventually it just became very, very kind of, you know, consuming and all consuming I've sort of I moved on to the um from economics I moved on to proprietary trading. Um and um and you know so that was that was me on my way to kind of you know towards financial markets and away from the economy. You're both being very reticent about the name of the German bank. Is that is there a 
it's it's slightly embarrassing to have a German it's, banker yeah, CV. Yeah. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, got... we don't like to talk about that, <laughs> to be honest. That's so, right. It was Dresden. I mean, we both, uh, I, I um, uh, was originally, so uh, again, Fortunately, you're more mature. Even <laughs> even your audience might not remember. Um, uh, uh, Klein Watt Benson, that was who, who I originally got hired by. And they got taken out by uh, Dresner. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Rob yeah. was it. No, and, you know, strangely enough, back then, I mean, Dresner was Germany's second largest bank after Deutsche Bank. So, um, you know, they were a big, big player. They don't exist anymore. And, my understanding yeah they were but, they were um, also completely useless i was i did you watch a slow death of a of, of a very you know a lot of talented people at that at klein watts and um you know for the kind of seven or eight years i was there it was just this very slow death you know by the time i left it was a disaster yeah so it was a, one of the preeminent merchant banks i mean david clemente right. was a, yeah. was a yeah. superstar and yeah. i remember well and Obviously, you spent time at Sock Gen with Albert Edwards, and we'll, yeah. be, we'll come back to that later. But when you left Sock Gen, you, Dylan, ended up at a Swiss family office. Yeah. And when I was reading about you, it said you initiated a liquid strategy portfolio. Mm -hmm. And I, I was interested in that because I, how, how would you do that? Where did you start? And what were the key issues that you wanted to solve? I mean, how did you go about it? Um, so a, a number of things. I think that... Um, you know, when I, when I was at SockGen with Albert and, you know, we had a very kind of wide um, uh, scope of things to write about. And, and so I, I did write about a lot. And But the, the thing that, that, that interested me, I mean, I, as I said earlier, I had been a proprietary trader. And um, one of the things I learned as a, as a prop trader was that I wasn't a very good prop trader. <laughs> um, but one of the kind of funny things about that was that um, when I saw these kind of, um, I saw a lot of prop trading activity um, and a lot of um, uh, kind of risk taking, and it just seemed very arbitrary to me. It didn't seem like there was much of a of a process, and it didn't seem like there was much of a rationale, right? I mean, I did used to hear guys say, "Look, stocks are for buying. <laughs> right? That's what you do with them. You buy them." Um, and this was these were market makers. So there was this, you know, I mean, they just had this huge bull market in the 90s. I was in the prop desk in the mid-2000s by this time. Um, and it just seemed like a crapshoot. And I just didn't ever feel comfortable in this kind of, you know, um, environment. Uh, so I kind of went back to SockGen, went back to my kind of analytical kind of research roots and, you know, wrote some kind of research with Albert. Um, but the thing that really kind of interested me was how to avoid that arbitrary decision-making when you're making investment decisions, right? How can you actually build a repeatable process? And so I, I was very interested in uh, a lot of kind of behavioral um, psychology, a lot of neuroscience, um, a lot of kind of computational ideas and computational um, uh, uh, theories. Uh, and this family office, I was just very kind of lucky, they kind of gave me an opportunity to, to, to basically kind of build a, an investment team. Um, uh, and I started out there building an equity team, which made kind of sense. I'd been an equities prop trader. I knew something about equities. Um, so I kind of built the equity team um, along the, you know, basically trying to kind of inst in 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 instill foundational principles that if you apply these principles, you apply these ideas, on balance, you'll get the right answer. And just once you've got these in place, then just keep cranking the handle. On balance, you've got the right answer. And therefore, on balance, you'll make decent returns. Um, and that kind of went quite well. And so the, the family office said, well, listen, we actually need that to be done more broadly, not just in an equity um, uh, context, but cross assets. So for the whole liquid portfolio. Um, so that's, um, that's 
that's how I got interested in doing it. What we were doing really was, um, uh, and again, this is quite an, an interesting kind of intellectual problem to solve, but if you're running a multi-asset portfolio, you've got equities, you've got credit, you you know, rates, maybe some precious metals, maybe a hedge fund allocation, um, they're all very, very different um, things. Uh, how do you compare them? You know, you're, you're fundamentally comparing apples and oranges, right? How do you sure. try and put them onto some kind of consistent framework so that you can then allocate to them. How do you know if, if, if high yield is more attractive than equities, for example, right? Um, how do you know if gold is more attractive than than government bonds, right? So these things get, they, they, they get it's an interesting kind of exercise, you know, so that was something else that... that now, how did you know if gold was more attractive than government bonds? Well, gold is a tricky one, actually, because um, uh, the, 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 the kind of common framework that you can use is expected return. Mm. Right. That's how you can. And then you can go a step further and you can say risk adjusted expected return. Right. So you, you can then say you've got a kind of expected sharp ratio, if you like. Um, and then you, you know, and then you plug in the um, the correlation between those things. And then you can come up with some kind of, um, well, theoretically, you come up with a kind of Markovich portfolio. But we all know that mm. in the real world, that doesn't work for 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 for, for well well-known reasons, but it doesn't make it a bad model, by the way, it's, 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 you can kind of use it. Um, but when you get to something, if you're looking at, you know, something that, that gives you a yield, whether it's a high-yield bond, a government bond, or an equity, um, if the price goes up, all else equal, the, the yield's just fallen, right? So your expected return's just fallen, right? Um, and vice versa. Gold, there's nothing, there's, there's no anchor, really. Your expected return, if you look at the, the historical performance of gold, it's basically 1% or 2% above the rate of inflation. Mm. The problem is if, so your expected return is, you know, one or 2% above the rate of inflation. That's fine. The problem is if it doubles, your expected return is still <laughs> one or 2% above the rate of inflation. So it's it's actually quite an intractable asset, asset class, really, um, gold. And so the way we did it, it was really just, um, uh, we um, kind of assumed that, uh, um, well, we had the orthogonality. We assumed it was zero return, but it did give us some diversification. And the diversification gives you effectively optionality. It gives you um, allocation opportunities, allocation optionality. So we wanted that, but we assumed it was a zero return. Uh, you know, and there and therefore your kind of your your model naturally leads you towards having less rather than more. Uh, but it's not zero, and that's the way we kind of. Um, so that was a difficult one. You know, bonds, equities, is a bit easier. Yeah, gold is quite interesting. But maybe we'll come back to gold. We'll maybe talk sure. about gold and crypto because sure. I'd like to know why gold isn't going up when crypto is. But uh, we'll, 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 right. we'll return to that because this, I mean, it's quite interesting. You Going to family office, I mean, it's kind of like the antithesis of a prop desk. Because a family office is about the preservation of wealth for future ge generations, keeping your capital protected. And obviously, that's been a pretty stupid strategy in the last 10 yeah. years, because what you wanted to do is is be a prop trader and yeah. go you know, borrow as much as you can and go and take the highest risk um, approach you, you possibly can. I mean, do you have any feeling for to what extent um, family offices generally have kind of thrown that preservation of capital being the prime focus to, well, let's make a shed load of money in venture capital. Do you think people have been taking a much more aggressive approach? Um, in my experience, um, it's, I would probably say no. 
Uh, I think you've got, and again, there's a very wide spectrum. You've got some very, very, very sophisticated family offices. You've got some some absolute dummies. Um, I think that the generally, you know, even somewhere in the middle, there's a kind of barbell approach, right? So even though you see a lot of kind of family office involvement in venture, that's not their whole portfolio, no, sure. right? Um, so, uh, and certainly, I think some of the smartest investors that I've come across that I know today are actually family office managers because they're unconstrained. Um, and, you know, they can do more kind of interesting things. Um, I think one of the mistakes that people make about thinking about investing and investors, they kind of assume that you have to be really smart. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you do have to be, like, not completely dumb. But you don't have to be really much smarter than the next guy. You don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. Um, but you, you do have to be different. And family offices allow you to be different. You know, the good family offices allow the managers just to be different and to do their thing, right? You don't have that kind of institutional constraint that, you know, even a hedge fund, you know, a hedge fund, the first thing you get penalized for is style drift, right? You got, you're not allowed to be, once once you've been pigeonholed, that's it. Um, so uh, family offices give people that freedom and they give investors that freedom. And so you get very creative um, investors at family offices. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, I, 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 I think that, um, the, the the whole idea of capital preservation is is kind of just it's, it's never really been very sexy, you know. If you just say to someone, listen, I can I'll give you whatever you kind of whatever capital you kind of um, put in the portfolio today, you know, you'll probably get it back in ten years' time with you know some kind of real return without much volatility. You know, it's one of those things that everyone likes the sound of it, kind of in theory, but when you put it in front of them, they're not that interested because they'd much rather go for a kind of ten x. And then this kind of environment that you're in today. Uh, which has kind of rewarded gullibility and, frankly, stupidity, you know, over the last several years. Um, uh, capital preservation is actually really hard, especially when, you know, government, uh, not, not government, but government bonds close to zero. Um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you could you could have a capital preservation portfolio um, basically at zero cost, zero um, energy, zero um, mental engagement. Um, uh, and it, it was colder. Uh, you know, an investment grade bond portfolio, right? <laughs> That's all you needed, right? And you could probably get your kind of, you know, seven, eight percent. You'd compound it in real terms over time. It wouldn't need any management. There was no brain damage. It was all very, very, you know, um, uh, 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 low touch. Today, you know, triple C corporates are six percent. It's crazy, really. So capital reservation is actually quite difficult. It's a difficult thing to do, right? Um uh, uh but yeah, I I, I think that um for me the attraction was just the the ability to be creative, the ability to be different, um, and the ability to really kind of build um this kind of, you know, non arbitrary decision making process. Rob, um you're the rocket scientist. I mean do you agree that you can just make money if you're stupid? <laughs> It's, uh, well, I think there are a lot of examples of people who have made money. So, you know, there's quite a large sample size in that. Um, you know, it, it, I presume coming from the world of quant, it's one of those things where a lot of quants take this slightly agnostic view of the world. So, you know, we often follow that maxim of, of uh, Niels Bohr, the uh, very famous physicist who used to say, you know, it's very hard to make predictions, particularly about the future. Mm. And... Um, I always think that beautifully sums up kind of quant in a way that, of course, you're in the business of trying to make predictions. But really, I think the thing that always appealed to me from that perspective, and I think what good quants do, is they're really in the business of just collecting data. 
So it's almost the slight antithesis to, you know, someone who comes out with a with a kind of theory of saying, look, when X happens, Y will react in the following kind of way, according to my hypothesis. And I think what a good quant does at the end of the day is they go out there and they pick up every little bit of data. It's, uh, you know, I used to say in my old shop, I ended up in the end working for a, a very large quant hedge fund called Renaissance Technologies, who, you know, as you mentioned, are you know, often viewed as a bit of the kings of kind of quant. And, you know, their approach would be send anyone around who's got interesting data for sale. We never, ever turn anything away. Another way of looking at that a little bit is that, you know, most traders, most money managers, most people who are involved actively in markets spend their entire day looking at huge amounts of data. And most of it gets thrown away or gets wasted. Um, you know, you'll have someone who just focuses on one particular thing. And I think what a good quant does is, no, they, they pick up absolutely everything. And then they treat it as a bit of a scientific problem, uh, but a very empirical scientific problem. And I always think, you know, another great little way of explaining that is, you know, my old shop, we used to say, you know, if you go back to the 17th century, you had some major breakthroughs in uh, in physics and astronomy related to it. And in particular, you had two names that stood out. One was Newton. Newton, of course, you know, every school kid learns about force equals mass times acceleration. So his approach to everything was to, you know, try to write down equations that describe general kind of rules. That's not quant, contrary to what people might often think. A really good quant is typically something which is, was the approach of uh, someone called um, Kepler. And Kepler was one of the great 17th century uh, uh, astronomers. And what Kepler did is he went out and got the very best people to build him the most outstanding telescopes that you could build at that time and to meticulously collect data and then look at that data. And from that data, he could then make predictions about how certain you know, planets would move and how certain kind of you know, stellar projections effectively based around that. And I often say good quant is the latter. It's more the Kepler and not the Newton. And is that what Renaissance was like? I mean, full of astron astronomers and... Yes, actually, it was, there were a lot of astronomers. So, you know, in that specific example, Rentec was, um, they would show a strong preference for scientists that came along and had a background in empirical science where they'd taken huge amounts of data, such as, you know, someone who worked in astronomy or someone who worked at CERN and had actually, you know, looked at data and dealt with huge amounts of messy data and made sense out of that kind of, of course, using huge amounts of processing power as opposed to someone who came along and said, hey, I'm that wonderful mathematician who solved, you know, Ito's, you know, Fermat's last theorem, something like mm. that. No, that was just a lot less relevant to what they were doing. And why, I mean, why has Rentec been so successful when even some other very large funds haven't, uh, to the same extent, particularly lately, so I'm thinking of, of like Winton. Yeah. Um, what what's the thing that differentiates them? Because if you talk to David Harding, I mean, he's obviously a pretty smart bloke, right? I mean, he's, you know, he's obviously a genius. And you imagine that the same philosophy will... Absolutely. I think you're spot on. I think um, they have the same philosophy. They're clearly very smart. They hire super smart kind of people. I presume... 
there is perhaps a bit of a, you know, there, there is often the case, and I think this is probably true in quant in particular, that a disproportionate amount of the, the kind of winnings go to the very best, and often the very best. It's quite marginal. We used to use this analogy of Formula One, at the risk of running too many analogies. But the problem often with quant is, you know, it has this moniker of being black box investing. And of course, there is an element of black box investing. Um, it's a little bit, even if one did open the box, you know, unless you're really trained in, in, in advanced kind of mathematics or advanced kind of physics, you know, you, one probably wouldn't fully understand what goes on within it. So hence, you know, analogies are quite useful. And there's a little bit, if you look at, say, Formula One teams, you know, they do absolutely everything possible to eke out that tiny little advantage. And of course, nowadays, all of that advantage is gained by looking at the data. They measure everything on a, on a Formula One car. And the teams that are successful, it's often down to really small marginal things. So, um, you, know, I, I, you know, it's hard for me to tell because I was never an insider at Winton. But sure. I suspect, you know, in the case of Rentec, one advantage they do have is they, they really trade absolutely everything and anything that's legal and liquid, as we used to say. Whereas Winton, on the whole, my understanding is, you know, they're much more specific. They're very much futures traders. And I'm sure David Harding were here now. He'd probably say, no, 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 you've got that wrong. We trade a lot of equities as well. But I doubt they trade as many instruments as, as Rentec does. So that could be one advantage. They do, they do trade equities. I can vouch for that because I met the head of research at an equities conference. The Winton head of research. I was quite, I was quite surprised. I, what, what are you doing here? You know, there's no computers. The, he kind of laughed. Yeah, I mean, quite, quite I mean, interesting. Maybe, maybe what, what was he doing? <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to get some PA stock tips. <laughs> I, I think he was. Um, I think he was there to try and understand better how fundamental investors think. Think, mm -hmm. which if you are trying to program a computer, it might be quite helpful to try and understand mm. the the range yeah. of. I mean, obviously, quite difficult to program. Anyway, let, let's leave quants aside for, for the minute. I'm quite interested in this whole concept, which you've written about extensively, Dylan, about the idea that we're in a regime change. So we've had 40-year tailwind falling interest rates, and they're probably not going to fall an awful lot further. Now, there is an argument that says, you know, we could be looking at minus 5% rates in 2025 or whatever. But I think that's probably less likely than rates going up. Um, particularly we've got inflation. So if we think about that, we take that as a premise, then we're not going to have stock markets going up at the 8% per annum that they've done for the last however many years or even more than that quite recently. I was just wondering, I mean, you're obviously running a fund of funds. Is there um, something that you, is there a fundamental difference, do you think, between running, um, running money in a bull market running money in a bear market and running money in a flat market. Because it's my belief, and I don't have any way of proving this, but it's my belief that in a, in a flat market, your strategies are very different. So somebody who might be a brilliant fundamental long-term investor will probably make less money than a trader because a trader will be much better at finessing those little 10% is more important in a flat market. Have you thought about this at all and, and the sort of characteristics that you would look for in a fund manager? Um, yes, we think about it every day. Um, 
um, and have been for several years now. Um, I think that the, the, the simple answer is that we try very hard to avoid making those kind of bets. You know, I mean, you, I think what you're basically talking about, what, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying, you know, are you taking a bet on which type of strategy will fit the kind of market that you expect, right? Was or that, was the that your type question? of style, or the type of style, or the type of manager. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that you, you know any environment will 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 produce what the the most successful strategy will be dependent on the environment. This is true in anything. This is true in in sport. It's true in politics. It's certainly true in financial markets. Um, things that strategies which are very successful and strategies which when optimal strategies are not static they change over time um uh, uh because the because the market learns because the system learns so you when warren buffett was choosing low pe stocks discount to cash stocks um he had to go to the library and he had to get you know um these microfiche files and it kind of helped him that he had a a photographic memory um, and he could basically kind of remember what each come once he'd read the report he, he would just remember all of that so he kind of had that computer stored in his head and he had that computational power that processing ability um, and he could act on it um, uh, and that was incredibly successful because no one else was doing it no one else could really do it um, and then this kind of whole idea of value investing was 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 kind of born and the academics cottoned on to it and before you know it um, you know, you've got people doing PhDs on it and you've got universities publishing data sets on it and then you've got ETFs on it and then you've got books at airports on value investing. And, you know, and guess what? Value investing doesn't seem to work anymore. Um, and it's, so it's not the optimal strategy given that the, the environment has changed. What is working, what has worked recently, is the opposite of value investing. C craziness, recklessness, buying stuff that's just really a, a, a pipe dream. Uh, we've seen this, I think, most um, spectacularly in the, um, uh, in the SPAC market, um, uh, uh, which is now going flat, by the way. But, you know, this time last year, it was, it was, it was crazy what, what, what was happening, how dreams were being priced, right? Mm. Um, uh, and so, but that was a successful strategy. That has been a successful strategy for several years. Cathie Wood has built a multi-billion business, I think, by, frankly, by being kind of dumb, but with this very, very dumb strategy. So how, but of course, it's not dumb if it's been very, very successful, Right, so the the market environment will actually ch select the kind of the 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 the, the most um, successful strategy, um, and it will do so in a way which I think that you kind of you can't really predict. It's very difficult to predict. So, um, uh, the way Rob and I try to build a portfolio is we try to avoid putting ourselves in that position where we're we're dependent on me getting that prediction right, and so we tend to focus more on. Um, much more niche markets, much more niche areas for all sorts of reasons, by the way. But one of those reasons is that when you get into more kind of esoteric parts of the market, what you find is that there is a, a genuine and fundamental risk premium, right? So, and, and what do I mean by that? If you think of, for example, reinsurance. So we're involved in reinsurance markets. We have a, a kind of part of our allocations towards reinsurance. Um, the reinsurance industry relies on um, and only exists because um, underwriters of, of, of um, catastrophe risk are paid more 
then they, they then over time they're expected to pay out. In other words, there's a profit. There's a there's a profit incentive. If there wasn't, if it wasn't profitable to take on the risk of a hurricane hitting Miami or a, a, an earthquake hitting California, there would be no insurance market, right? So if there has to, if there is a demand for insurance, there has to be that supply. That supply is only going to come at a profit. Therefore, that's a fundamental risk premium, right? Now, <clears throat> the attractiveness or unattractiveness of that risk premium, the way it's priced in the market, will wax and wane over time. But it's a fundamental thing. It has to be there. Now, if we can allocate to to that risk premium and we can harvest that risk premium over time, then we don't need to pick the the superstar. We don't need to pick the, the the best and the brightest, right? We've actually kind of, in a way, we're really looking. Obviously, when we allocate to a manager, we try very hard to find the smartest ones, the ones we think are the best, the ones we think have longevity and will will survive and thrive in difficult environments, etc., etc., etc. We don't will, willingly go out and pick the dummies, right? <laughs> so we try to avoid them, but we, you know, it, it's actually um, uh, much easier to just select a risk premium which which you understand and whose properties are understandable. And you can see that it doesn't correlate with other things in the portfolio, right? That's how you build a portfolio. And so if we've got a whole bunch of strategies, a bunch of fundamental risk premia, which do not correlate, we're, we're not taking the bet anymore, right? We're not taking the bet on where interest rates go. We're not taking the bet on who the smartest guy in the room is, when, you know, because those are very difficult questions to answer. Sure. I mean, you know, I would never call Kathy Wood a dummy, but um, I must say... For sure. I mean, she, she, she can't be... If, I mean, what she's done, she's, she's built a business with a, with a superficially dumb strategy, but that was absolutely the right strategy. And by that, she's dumb in inverted commas, right? She's clearly not a dummy. No, no, but I mean... The, the, some of the stuff that she's come out with or her team have come out with have seemed nonsensical to me. And, you know, the, the Tesla model. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, you laugh, but it is laughable. I mean, she, she they had the wrong number of shares. I mean, <laughs> you have the wrong number of shares. You know, can you imagine publishing a note well, actually, I, I have got an example of a note where the analyst had to change his um, his price target on the basis of he got the number of shares wrong. But except he didn't change the price target or the recommendation. He just said, oh, I've got the number of shares wrong. It's funny because I was um, on Twitter earlier. I've been trying to keep off Twitter, but um, because it's too, you know, I enjoy it too much. It's too distracting. But my pal Jamie Powell at the FT had uh, quoted a tweet from somebody who talked about Ark's um, Tesla model assumes that in 2025, which is obviously three years away now, right, um, there'll be 1.4 trillion robo-taxi miles driven, which is actually half the miles of the total US mileage, yeah, including <laughs> cars, trucks, yeah. buses, everything. By 2025. By 2025. Right. Oh, but, but of course, it doesn't matter because it's global. So, um, <laughs> of course, of course, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, it, no, why, but it's, it's, it's very why somebody like that able to take people in when it, I mean, it, it's so obviously incredibly superficial to you know people that are used to doing proper research. I mean, I mean, she's absolutely got the Tesla share price one hundred percent right, but there's a sort of intellectual dishonesty. 
about mm. the about the research behind it that I I, I find difficult to to. I I, I can uh, so I completely agree. Um, but you know I, I'd kind of flip it over. You know I can I can think of some brilliant investors and fundamental analysts who've just who've who've had disastrous performance for ten years. I don't mean they've had one or two bad years. I mean for ten years, right? Um, um, for for you know for whatever reason, um, I think they've been so hung up on the kind of on, on on the value thing, or they've 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 been overly hung up on it. Uh, you know they you know they maybe haven't fully um, uh, appreciated the nuance of, of of value investing. Right, Charlie Munger said, if it's not if you're not trying to find mispriced value, what, what kind of investing are you doing exactly? Right, sure. that's not which is not the same as just buying stuff that's on a low PE ratio, yeah, right? Course, yeah. And a lot of people, and all, so, but I, I certainly know some incredibly thought who they've had a brilliant year, by the way. Um, but over the kind of you know over the over a ten year period, they've had they've had a disaster. Um, and so it, there's something more than just how smart you are or how I think it's as you know, I think it's to do with the the nature of the market environment, what kind of strategy is the market rewarding at any point in time? And, you know, for, for reasons that I don't fully understand, I had my kind of suspicions. Um, we've been in one, just an incredibly frothy, hot market that's kind of rewarded gullibility and recklessness, right? right. I, that, I mean, that in itself was very, very interesting. Um, uh, but, you know, as to why, you know, I, I couldn't really tell you. Hugh Henry said, and I must say I agree with him, there's no one correct way of doing things that's set in stone. Mm. Periodically, managers should be open to trying different approaches. I'm wondering, how do quants do this? Because if, it, if it's not working, they just change it. They just have to throw out uh, and do something different. Yeah, actually, that's a very good point, Stephen, because I think, again, you know, what defines a good quant in that sense? It really is someone who doesn't, you know, you always say the... Uh, the big mistake can sometimes be that you have such faith in your models that the market is wrong and my model is right, right? That's almost a guaranteed recipe for disaster. When we look at, you know, one of the things I focus on when we look at managers, we try to find good quant managers. And, and uh, one of the larger allocations in our portfolio is quant. Mm. We try to find quant managers that are prepared to accept the fact that actually what they're doing is they're living in an ever-changing world. It's precisely what you were saying. And again, I draw my own experience here at Rentec. Um, what Rentec used to talk about a lot was half-life of models. So it was almost this notion that just like radioactive decay has a half-life, um, quant models have a half-life. In other words, they have this almost quite smooth curve of their ability to generate alpha decaying over time. And in their experience, you know, and they've been doing this now for, you know, 40 years, um, there is no such thing as a quant model that just works always. Of course. At any point in time, all throughout time. Um, there are probably some signals they've been trading that have worked for a very long time, but that's extremely rare. The vast majority of things you have to do, you just have to refine them, work on them, adjust them, because we live in this changing world. And, 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 you know, to Dylan's point as well, anything you find will suffer from alpha decay. And what is the half-life of a model? I mean, do they study, you know, did it, does it vary from market to market or is it just very, indivi very individual? And how would, you, how would you know that you're, you know, because it starts to not work? 
Exactly. I mean, it's it's actually as simple as that. It almost it just stops working. At a certain point, you have to ask yourself, okay, is, this, is it not working? What's the reason it's not working? Um, the trick now is don't ever throw anything away because you might take something out of your... Over, you know, imagine you run a whole system that's made up of lots of different underlying models. And um, you, you take something out. So let's say you're trading equities on a quantitative kind of approach. And slightly simplistic view in that sense, but you have different groups of factors that capture different kind of phenomena in equity markets. So you might capture sentiment, uh, you might capture, you know, all kinds of fundamental type relationships. And you might be in a market environment where a specific predictor is not really working very well. Um, you don't know if that's just a temporary thing. It might have a three, four, five year kind of time period. Um, it's a little bit, you know, back to Dylan's point, we've been very much in a market that's been heavily sentiment driven. And actually, equity quant systems, particularly ones that are slightly more slowly traded, which is another crucial ingredient in the world of quant, is this kind of time scale. Mm. What kind of thing are you trying to predict? Are you trying to predict, say, Tesla's price tomorrow? Or are you trying to predict it in a year from mm. now? And, you know, the crucial thing there is, is actually, as strange as it sounds, it, well, maybe it doesn't sound so strange, it's much easier to predict where it's going to be tomorrow than where it's going to be in a year's time from now. And... Um, you know, oh, that really? can make a huge difference in terms of how effective your models are. Because as a fundamental analyst, I always think it's much easier to, the further out you go, you know, within reason. You know, I'm a tomorrow view, toss a coin. Yeah. A 12-month view, I can apply some skills and some logic and, and come up with a reasonable set of estimates. Interesting that it should be the other way around. So in the end, then, the, the, the computers are down to the person driving them. It's the, whether, you know, how much of the, on the gas and how much on the brake, which gear you should be in. Yeah, yeah, actually, you know, I think that's a really good point, you know, in that, again, it's a little bit that, you know, airplane analogy. Every single time we get in a plane nowadays, 90% of the time, the flying is done by a machine, by a computer. Sure. Um, but, you know, would you want to get into a plane right now that doesn't have a pilot sitting behind the controls? The answer is probably for most of us, no. <laughs> well, Michael O'Leary says one's enough. <laughs> <laughs> to which I've had a great story where someone, no names, someone I know who was renting a plane uh, was told it comes by default with one pilot. And um, so, they, of course, they asked, well, how much does the second pilot cost? And the response to that was, well, put it this way. If that first pilot has a heart attack, you know, as you're crossing the Atlantic, how much would you be prepared to pay for the second pilot? So, <laughs> so it, it, you know, in 100% of cases, they'd all say, definitely, I'll take both pilots. So, but going back to the, you know, the quant world, absolutely, you always, you always want, ultimately, these things are built by humans. You have got people who built these things. Yes, you let the computer run itself. And a good quant system, in, in my view, in our view, is very much one where you don't have that human intervention. That's not to say it doesn't work. But I think even the most sophisticated quant systems, you always allow the possibility to override the system. The reason for that is that, well, if you do encounter um, situations such as we have seen, you know, in the last 20 years where, you know, when Russia decides to invade Ukraine, when um, the North Koreans test a ballistic missile, etc., etc., 9-11, you know, we're all old enough to remember 9-11. Situations like that are simply not captured in any historic data. And ultimately, quant is about looking at historical data, using that historical data to make predictions about the future. 
So, but something you you we've just touched on is quite interesting to me because I always think of quant as being a computer. But what you're saying is that the person behind it is actually really important. So, how do you judge the person? Well, look, I'd say the following. I'd say that actually, because if I'm going to judge a fund manager, so you know, I helped a wealth manager for a couple of years pick equities and I mm. ran some fund, ran some um, portfolios for them. And they would ask me, oh, we've got so-and-so manager coming in. Do you want to come along? Or we're looking at so-and-so manager. Can you come along? Just tell me, tell us what you think. And I would intuitively be able to do that because I could ask, ask the guy a question and say, you know, you've got X, Y, Z in your portfolio. Why is it in your portfolio? And then based on the quality of that answer, and I could form a judgment. And it was a great surprise to me. The quality of the, some of the answers was appalling. Yeah. But how would you do that with a quant? Because it's a completely different... Yeah, look, so I would say, you know, even even in, in the most sophisticated quant shops, I think what you want to look for is you do want to look for people who have some markets experience. Hmm. So it almost is this slight recipe for disaster. And I've seen it many, many times in Tiki and kind of startup world. You'll see a bunch of very, very smart scientists who come along and say, actually, we want to start trading markets. And they start collecting data. We've got money to collect data, we've got these powerful computers. And I'm not saying it's a recipe for disaster, but the problem with that is you're going to end up making some really expensive mistakes. The simple reason that, yes, you can have these wonderful models that describe how certain things happen in the real world. And then as you as you kind of alluding to, you know, as I mentioned earlier on, you can have these extreme outlier events that completely take you off track. And it, it's without dwelling too much on about it, but I, a lot of people don't realize this. My old shop, Renaissance Technologies, started life as a discretionary trading shop. Jim Simons, who's this you know prize-winning mathematician who started it, started you know had won some prize money and was interested in trading markets and started trading futures contracts, and all went very well until it didn't. They hit you know the infamous crash in the late nineteen eighties, and things went very kind of pear shaped. And it was at that point they said, well, actually, perhaps we need to bring process into this whole thing. We're mathematicians by background. It makes a lot of sense to start wearing our mathematicians' hats and sure. approach all of these rules. Now, of course, you could say what happens, for example, even at Rentec, even if you went back 30 years ago, they did have some people there who came from a more traditional kind of financial background and who actually had the ability to ultimately you know, override systems or say, actually, something here needs to be monitored and we need to step in so there is always that pilot in a good quant shop call him the risk manager call him the kind of you know overlooker of what happens with the systems is often someone who comes from a markets background interesting now dylan um when you were at sock gen and writing the original version of popular delusions you were always very good at questioning the received wisdom and um you continued uh, in that vein I wonder, you know, one of the things that I've been puzzling about is that if we are in this regime change, and I, I mean, people do seem to argue about this, but it seems to me sort of self-evident. Um, what happens to 60-40 funds? I mean, what are wealth managers doing today? I mean, you, I mean it just seems I'm, I'm slightly glad that I'm not sitting in these investment committee meetings any longer. They were They were dreadfully dull because... The meetings, I, I was doing this in the mid-2010s, um, 
And every investment committee meeting would start off with, well, when do you think they're going to put up rates? And I kept saying, doesn't matter, guys, because the stock market keeps going up. You put up rates, stock market keeps going up for a while longer. We worry about it then. But we always just have these long, involved discussions. Stocks are for which, which, you know, <laughs> completely pointless, a, a bizarre um, sort of scenario. But mm -hmm. I, want, I haven't spoken to those people for a while. I wonder what they're, what are they doing? You know, well, I, I would actually kind of go even further than, than that and say it's not just the 60-40. I think it's pretty much the whole thing. You know, when, when, when you asked earlier, our family offices kind of taken rest, they've been doing lots of venture and, and stuff like that. And I said, well, most of them are kind of doing some kind of barbell and, um, you know, they're, they're, um, they're, you know, they're pretty sophisticated generally. Um, but what they're all doing is sitting on that time bomb, that duration time bomb, right? They're all doing, um, I mean, you, the answer to your question, and it was all over the, um, uh, the, 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 the papers maybe about a year or so ago when people were saying, well, you know, we can't get any, um, uh, we, we, we're basically um, sitting on this huge risk of, of, of interest rates suddenly rising, uh, inflation picking up, interest rates picking up. Um, uh, and suddenly, kind of valuations um, uh, falling. How do we how do we avoid that risk? And the answer was um, uh, infrastructure funds, uh, private equity, right? And which of course doesn't why solve that answer? Problem. Why is that an answer? It's, it's not an answer, right? You what you go you, you even longer duration, you even longer maturity, you even less liquid. Uh, I think it's crazy, but I think that that is actually most people's answers. And and um, we, you know, I said we used to think about this a lot uh, at the family office. Um, Rob and I talk about it a lot. In fact, Caldo, it's, it's one of the, it's, it's what we kind of talk about most days, um, uh, because I think that the um, uh, the the it's, it's not just sixty forty. It's it, it's pretty much everything that's done well over the last forty years. So it's venture, it's private equity, it's public equity, it's credit, it's rates. It's 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 kind of all it's real estate. It, it's all been driven by the same. Um, uh, underlying cause, which I think is this bull market and, and interest rates. You know, interest rates have gone from kind of twenty percent um, in the early eighties, late seventies to, to to zero to negative um, uh, uh, today. Um, so, what happens when interest rates go into a you know that 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 tailwind turns to to a headwind? What happens when um, uh, you get a bear market and in interest rates? And and that's not that's not a bad year. That's not when interest rates go from, you know, maybe one to three, right? Or, or even to, to three and a half. That's, you know, in five years' time, interest rates are at 10%, right? Or maybe already 5%. Or maybe in 10 years' time, they're at 10. And in 20 years' time, they're at 20, right? What do you do in that kind of environment? What works? Because all the stuff that's worked over the last 40 years, I think, is just dead in the water. It's not, it's not going to work. And it, it doesn't, interest rates don't need to get to 20% for the, all that stuff not to work. I mean, even, That's right. even just going from where we are now to five or seven, which would be a more normal environment. I think so. Environment. Yeah. I think so. I, I think that's right. But, you know, I, I, here's the problem. Um, the, the, well, there's, there's three problems, really. The first is that um, uh, there is a huge asymmetry. Uh, in interest. Let's just say that. It's very easy to make predictions, oh, this is going to happen, right? But the fact is... You know, it, it, as Rob said earlier, your predictions about the future are quite hard, mm. right? But it's very easy to see that there's a huge asymmetry. I don't think there's an awful lot of, uh, of upside for bond markets here. There's a huge amount of downside. So that's already quite unattractive. Um, the second problem is that, as a matter of fact, 
People have not been good at predicting the end of the, the bull market in bonds. People have not been good at predicting uh, inflation. Uh, and I speak as someone who's, <laughs> who's failed quite miserably at predicting inflation in the past. Right? So that's the second problem. And then the third problem is you still have to do something about it. You still have to invest. You can't just run away and hide. You know, you can't just say, well, I'm just going to put money on in asset class X until I've got some clarity. Because asset class X doesn't exist. There is nowhere to hide. So you have this very, very hard problem to solve. It's kind of intractable. It's not forecastable. The risk is very, very clear. But we don't quite know when it's actually going to materialize, or even if it's going to materialize. You know, which might sound like a crazy thing to say when you see what central banks are doing, you see all the money printing, you see the, the, the politization of central banks and central bank activity, um, you see the recent supply to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but look at Japan. <laughs> Japan did QE way before everyone else. They went in big way before um, uh, everyone else. Um, uh, uh, they've had the same <laughs> supply chain problems as, uh, as, uh, as everyone else. Um, where's the inflation? Where is it, right? You know, there's a, I think there's a new book come out with Charles Goodhart and uh, another guy saying that demographics are actually going to be hugely inflationary, right? Because it's a kind of reduction of supply, but it's an increase in demand. Okay, well, if that's the case, again, Japan has gone in that demographics. Where's its inflation? Uh, now, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that there's this isn't a problem. Infl therefore, inflation's not a problem. I'm not saying that. I'm saying therefore, this is clearly something we don't very we don't very well understand. This is actually, this is a difficult thing to get right. So again, you go back to the beginning. What do we do about it, right? It's, it's, it's not a kind of trivial thing. So this is, this is why we set up the, the fund. And, by the and, and what have the Japanese family offices done about it? Because has nobody in Japan made any money? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. <laughs> I don't know. I don't actually know any Japanese family offices. I know lots of Japanese, small um, Japanese business owners um, whose stocks are trading kind of below their um, uh, 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 cash holdings. And I've actually seen a couple of guys saying, now is the time. These guys have actually now got um, a shareholder value. A lot of these kind of, you know, small, medium-sized companies are actually buying their own stock, you know, and a lot of the families who own those companies are actually trying to get their managers to buy their own stock. Um, uh, whether or not that's true, I don't know, because I... And I'm sure you have as well. I've heard this story for the last 20 years. Well, I seem to recall the third quarter of 2005 was the last time that I was really convinced the Japanese stock market was going to go up. But it only lasted about a month. And yeah. I, 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 and I've, I've, I have actually dabbled in the Japanese market from time to time because, it, you know, it, it often looks not only tempting, but looks like it's going to go up. And you can make, you can make decent money in it. Yeah. But I'm not a huge expert on Japanese stocks. I yeah. will be, though, because I'm, I've got a call tomorrow morning. I'm going to be doing a piece of research on a Japanese company. So um, I'll be, you know, I'll be much more. Um, I'll be Obviously, much yeah, it's going to be all over it by tomorrow morning. Well, the, 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 the question in Japan is quite interesting, because you would imagine that there would have been a lot more buybacks of these situations. But if you were a Japanese family, you might not for very good reason, you might not want to take any currency risk. Yeah. You might want to be in the domestic market. So I wonder what you would have done. I mean, because, and it's quite an interesting avenue for me to explore um, as to what people in, in Japan have been doing in order mm. to make themselves more successful. Maybe they're just not rich like people are in the United States. Maybe they're, you know, maybe there hasn't been 
the same wealth creation because they just haven't had the same tailwind. But I think mm. it's quite an interesting, quite an interesting subject to um, yeah. I mean, bonds have done phenomenally well for for the Japanese as well, yeah. right? There was another aspect to it, you know. But they've been they've had low interest rates for forever for, for I mean, a long time now. So yeah, yeah. they kind of. I mean, your your starting point would have been a long time ago for you to have done yeah. well. And yeah. bonds, you're not even paid much yeah. to to own them. So I suppose well, yeah, that's... But it's, it, it's a really interesting question. I'm just thinking of, you know, when they publish these lists of, you know, the largest family offices in the world. And to me now, I, I'm no expert on it, but Japanese family offices, you're right, don't seem to feature in that. Which is quite interesting. I don't know you, to you. No, no. It's quite interesting because you think that, you know, it's been an incredibly successful economy and there is a lot, you know, there's a lot of family. Well, this business. is, I mean, I think yeah, anyone who spends any time looking at Japan has to be humbled by it because a lot of the things that we think we all understand and the things that we really hang our hats on, you go over and look at what the, the Japanese experience, because more often than not, they've already been through it. And, you know, I said quantity of reason is a kind of good example of demographics. And, good, and it just hasn't done what, you know, what was predicted, right? And again, that's not to say, again, it's not to say that we're not worried about inflation. It's not to say that we, it's just to say, look, we don't quite understand this process very well, right? Mm. Um, but again, it doesn't, it doesn't absolve us of the requirement to, to make a, a, an investment judgment, right? No, we no, still have sure. to make that decision. No, I just, I, I'm curious about it because the Japanese stock market is quite lowly rated. And yeah. I mean, the same right. thing that applies to yeah. South Korea in a small, yeah. smaller sense and, yeah. you know, very successful economies, but yeah. we've got very lowly rated stock markets. And yeah. it, could that be us? You know, I mean, could that be the S&P 500? Could look like the Japanese stock market? I mean, I'll go, I, I, I'm throwing this up as a kind of question in, in the air and I hope that that's not going to be what happens because well, we're going to be all good. very miserable <laughs> if, that's, if that's the case. And obviously American companies have been much more um, successful, but it's an, interest, it's an interesting mm. one. But let's leave that to one side because if we're right that returns are going to be lower, there's, there's all, I mean, 60-40 isn't the only problem. Another problem is in company pension funds because yeah. every pension fund I've looked at is assuming that they're going to make eight percent, and what, what happens when they can? Yeah, no, they're. I mean, they're. I mean, we know they can uh, bonds, and lots of them got high allocation to bonds. But let's say they all go into equities. I mean, they can't make eight percent. So, what, what should we be doing? We just be avoiding companies with large pension funds, large pension debt. Well, it doesn't. They don't even need to have large deficits. You just need to have large funds relative to yeah. the market cap. Yeah, it's a huge liability. Yeah, I, I mean, these things are, um, uh, uh, I think they're a, you know, they're, they're a time bomb. They're a, they're a kind of huge time bomb. So I, yeah, I completely agree. And, and, and by the way, I, I'm not sure there's an answer. I don't think, some, some problems don't have an answer. I don't think there is an answer, right? Um, you know, Kevin Keegan once said um, when he was, um, uh, he just had a, a bad run of uh, results as the England manager. And someone said, you know, asked him about this and how, how secure he felt in his job. And he said, well, um, I can see what's around the corner, right? I just, I just don't know where the corner is. <laughs> <laughs> right? And that's kind of where we are. That's exactly the kind of situation we are right now. And as I said, I, I don't really know what the answer is. And I don't know how to advise these big pension funds. Because I think that when you get a certain size, I, I actually think there's nothing you can do. Right? The best, uh, well, maybe not the best, the standard kind of response that I used to get when I used to speak to other family office managers and about this topic, uh, you know, what are you doing about it? 
and bit, bit like you with your kind of um, uh, um, your quarterly allocation meetings when you'd, you would start off with, with a question about sadly they were monthly well monthly <laughs> even worse wow um, um, uh, but it's you know it's basically just this wheel spinning you know you start talking about you start asking questions you wish you had the answer to right and you realise very quickly that you don't have the answer and probably nobody does so you shrug your shoulders and just to just move on, get about your day, and that was that was very much the impression I got from speaking to other family office managers. Effectively, people were just sitting with their fingers crossed and hoping that it didn't happen. Certainly, that it didn't happen on their watch. Yeah. Right? If they could just get another ten years out of this kind of gig, then they would. You know, it would be someone else's problem. And I feel that there's 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 an awful lot of that. I think that if you're small and you're nimble. Um, and you can invest in smaller managers and you can invest in more kind of um, niche managers as we do, then you can actually do something different, right? But you can't do it if you're big. You can't do it if you're a, uh, if you're a, you know, a, a $10 billion um, endowment. I think it's going to be very, very difficult. Very, 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 endowments are generally, a lot of the big endowments are incredibly well-funded, right? But if you're looking, if you're looking at um, uh, pension funds, you need to make that 8% and they've just about been making it over the last few years, um, uh, you know, for some of the kind of larger kind of U.S. corporates, I think these guys are going to be in trouble. Um, the the states, a lot of the state pension funds in the year, again, the, these guys are going to be in trouble, and I'm I'm not sure what 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 they can do to be honest. So, does that mean you know? So the companies are at risk, the employees potentially, yes, could be at risk. Well, I think that oh, yes, I think so. I mean, I would have thought that if you get. Uh, you know, and again, I, I don't know. I would guess that there would probably be some kind of government support. I, I mean, I think that ultimately we do end up in some kind of inflationary um, disaster. I think that's where we're going here, right? Um, and one of the reasons is because I think that, um, uh, as you said, you've got this huge unfunded um, pension scheme. Um, you're going to have um, uh, retirees um, who've got no money who are going to go broke. Um, and... Uh, exactly the time when retirees are actually going to be politically very important, right? You're in increasing weighting in the, in sure. the, um, uh, in the um, uh, of voters. Um, and so I think that the answer to, to that problem is, becomes a printing press, right? And one of the problem, one of, well, the fact is, we talked earlier about how, you know, um, the environment will almost select the successful strategy. You have to say the successful strategy has been printing money as a politician. That's been the way to solve problems. Mm. Just print the money because there's been no consequence. There's been no um, uh, inflation at all, right? Uh, again, we can get into the arcade. What exactly is inflation? Well, actually, there's been lots if you look in the right place, et cetera, right? But as for, 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 for your, your average politician, your average voter, there hasn't been a problem, mm. right, with just printing more money. And so the, the politicians have learned, you know, if there's a problem, we, we print the money. Now, ultimately, I think that does kind of become inflation. But, you know, again, as, as Kevin Keevan said, I, <laughs> I don't know where the corner is. <laughs> yeah. And, um, of course, um, you have people like Stephanie Calton being incredibly vociferous that there, isn't yeah. a, that there isn't a problem. And it's kind of hard to reason with these people. Yes. I, did a, I, I did a webinar with Steve Keen, and um, we, you know, we started to have a disagreement of opinion about the, you know, the level of debt. And, you know, his argument is you can't add up government debt and private sector debt, which I, you know, I, I, I kind of understand is, is logic, but the let's not go down the modern monetary theory rabbit hole because, yeah. because I'll, I'll just start ranting. And, um, 
Yeah, I, you know? I would absolutely egg you on as well. So yeah, so then we'll leave <laughs> yeah, that, that on one side. We've got, we've, got, we've got lots of more interesting things exactly. to talk about. So I, I was writing um, slides for I I've I started a YouTube channel and I said, okay, let's what I'll do is I'll do one video a week for a year. There's this guy called Ali Abdal who is a genius, and he was a medical student at Cambridge. He started a YouTube channel. And he's now got a million followers and he makes like a million quid a year, mainly from YouTube and selling courses about how to be a YouTube influencer. Wow. And he said, you know, just <laughs> yeah. you've got to just got to do one one video a week. He said it took me a year to get a thousand listeners, a thousand viewers and I, a thousand subscribers. And I got a thousand subscribers in like two months. I was thinking, Ali Abba, what do you know? Yeah. But then I spent the next 10 months going nowhere. And I, I was thinking, oh, I'll just give up because, you know, I've done the year and I've got a few thousand subscribers and it was quite fun. But I happened to be on a call and Ali Abdal's production manager was on the call. And I said, oh, and I explained the story and, and she said, oh no, it's, you've got to keep going for two years. So, <laughs> so I was just doing, I was just doing the 20, you know, what's going to happen in 2022. And I was doing the slides for China it seems to me that China is going to be a big thing this year because the whole, well, there's all sorts of issues, aren't there? There's, a, you know, what the government's doing to the tech companies. But what interests me is the fallout from Evergrande. I don't know if this is something that either of you have looked at, but it seems to me it's, it's not caught as much attention as it might do because it, I think it's really fundamental to sort of the global growth outlook. So you've got Evergrande, it's obviously bust in some sort of sense. And what's the fallout from that? So the government can kind of bail them out. But if you're a Chinese, if you're a rich Chinese person, one of your main routes to saving an investment has been to buy an empty property in Shanghai or Beijing, not complete it, just leave it empty. And it's gone up a lot. And there's been all this money <laughs> directed into this completely pointless, worth worthless exercise. And now what's going to happen is that the rich Chinese are going to say, oh, well, hang on a second. If we put the money down and we put it down when it's a third complete, we don't know that it, in two years or three years time it will be complete. And it may be that even if our apartment's complete, the development may not be complete. So, you know, it's not a guaranteed risk-free capital appreciation. Mm. And if that happens, then there's all sorts of other consequences because then the whole machinery, the whole cycle doesn't work and the developers don't have enough money to buy the land off the municipalities. The municipalities rely on land sales for 40% of the revenue. And if they don't have 40% of the revenue or they're missing 10% or 20%, then they can't go and build new bridges to nowhere or mm. new subways. <laughs> well, well, have you looked at this and what do you think about it? Well, I, I mean, again, I kind of caveat it with my usual kind of reply, which is I don't really know. But it, it scares the hell out of me. Um, China really, really does. I, I, what I think is the, the sequence of events, which I would expect, is um, uh, you know, th there will be hard times economically. Mark Faber always used to say that China would, would grow old before it grew rich. right? And I think that's going to happen. Um, I think that's happening. Um, for the last kind of 30 or 40 years, China was reasonably kind of, um, well, it had been liberated. The people were reasonably free, um, free to kind of do, kind of what they wanted, which included making money. The two, it's difficult to 
separate the two. You know, this idea that you can have a kind of thriving economy, but, um, you know, you can control people politically. It doesn't work. You know, you're either, they're either free or they're not. Um, um, but they were kind of free. They made a lot of money. The whole thing was completely corrupt. The whole thing was based as well as that. It was also based on, a, as you said, a kind of real estate inflation. Um, but that kind of, you know, that that kind of did lift a certain number of people out of poverty. That did create some, you know, um, uh, some, it did create wealth. It might not have been as evenly spread as they wanted, but, you know, people were left out of poverty. There was a mass migration, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a mass migration um, from um, from the kind of country to the, to, to the city. Um, and basically, you know, most people did okay out of it. Some people did incredibly well, so some better than others, but most people did okay out of it. Um, so people kind of can get on with their lives when they think that tomorrow they're going to be better off and that, you know, their kids are going to be better off than they are. Um, but I think when that changes, there's a problem. And I think that that's now changed, not just because of the demographics, because because you've got, you know, you've now got a regime which is which is dictatorial, right? You've got a regime that's that's telling footballers that they're not allowed to play for the national team if they've got tattoos, right? They've got to, it's shutting down tournaments because some of the players have got fancy haircuts, right? So this <laughs> So, uh, I'm not that familiar with the Chinese football scene, but I mean, do they have any players that don't have a fancy haircut or a tattoo? No, so the, well, you, no the haircut's easy to fix. The, the tattoo's a bit more difficult. But this is, I mean, it's a, it, it, it's one of these kind of um, examples of of how they're just trying to control everything. And the problem is if you try and control everyone's kind of, if you try and make everyone the same, and you try and control everyone's kind of creativity and own kind of self-expression, that just naturally leads into entrepreneurialism. Right, because you're not allowing people to be creative entrepreneurs. Sure. You're not allowing people to be creative investors. Right, you're not. You're not. You're creating an environment that's just not um, conducive to that, and therefore you're creating an environment that's not that's not conducive to prosperity. So they're not going to grow. The, they're not, in my opinion, they're not going to grow that prosperity. So I think that will, you know, China's got a history of social unrest. Like totalitarian regimes have got a history of of, um, uh, of 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 coming unstuck when um, uh, when the people have had enough. Right, and I think that if you're if the people are not improving the lot then there's much higher risk that they're actually they're going to complain about it so what do they so what does the regime do well it cracks down even harder so i kind of wouldn't be surprised if you, you end up in a kind of rerun of some kind of cultural revolution right that's what again by the way again that's, that's so this I, I hasten to add that the <laughs> guest views are their own <laughs> well, listen, i also reason i don't really know what i'm talking about right and i i, I wouldn't you know, when Rob and I are building the portfolio, we are actually pretty kind of fastidious and avoiding exactly these types of bits, right? Avoiding right. exactly this type of thing. So yeah. we can talk with this and it's all very interesting. We've all got our opinions, but would you bet on it? No way, right? So then this is exactly this is exactly the kind of thing we would just never bet on, right? And if we saw a manager who said, oh, well, this is going to happen and this is going to therefore I'm short, sure, yeah. me and Rob would be, we'd be out. We wouldn't, we so wouldn't want to hear the rest of the story. Your solution <laughs> is you see that problem or potential problem on the horizon and you just say, okay, I don't want to have any exposure to that long or short. So I'm Correct. just going, anybody, I'm just not going to have China in my portfolio. Is that the solution? Basically. I mean, yeah. we would actually go slightly further and say we we, we tried not to have any equity risk um, in our portfolio, or the extent that we do have equity risk in the portfolio, we've actually got that equity tail offset somewhere else in the portfolio, right? With, we, you know, with a long vol, because you know, so we we do, you know, we do reinsurance, we do cryptocurrency arbitrage, we do litigation finance, we do quant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, we do stuff that just doesn't really have that. So we've kind of robustness is the best protection against ignorance. <laughs> 
right? Sure. So if we're ignorant about the future, we don't know about that stuff, but we do know something about robustness. We do know something about what this risk premium of harvesting is. We do know something about how that each each risk premium correlates with the other. And therefore, we, we understand what the real orthogonality in our portfolio should be. And therefore, we can understand that our portfolio kind of doesn't care what President Xi does or Putin does or what happens in Ukraine over the next month. It, it doesn't really make any difference to us. You know, we expect things to just kind of churn out those kind of risk premia that we're collecting, you know, regardless. Would you, would you yeah, agree with that? Absolutely. And I think that's the other crucial thing, the portfolio construction and in, in, in the entire kind of setup. And, you know, we really are attempt to build this portfolio that's proper orthogonal kind of return streams. And, you know, in as far as we've done that, I think we're, we're getting very close to that. We've kind of achieved that. You know, we recently did a little exercise of, you look at most traditional hedge fund strategies, what you'll find is these things are highly correlated. You're essentially getting very similar kind of risk premium exposures. Irrespective, you know, some guys say we're macro, others say, hey, we're equity long short, others are all oh, event driven. But ultimately, if you look at it, the date, what the data tells you is these things are highly correlated. And really what we're trying to do here is build something that really is return streams that are truly uncorrelated. Ultimately driven by this idea, idea that we are genuinely market neutral. And But there's, there's something... Again, there's an underlying cause of those returns that we're getting, and which yeah. is not—it's not to do with the great person theory of investing, right? You know, there's actually just there's a process, and there is there's a risk premium. I wouldn't even call it an alpha. Alpha is hard, right? Mm. You know, alpha is not sustainable. Alpha is very much the exception, not the rule. And um, but there is a, a risk premium. There's a there's risk. Cryptocurrency arbitrage, okay, for all sorts of reasons. Um, uh, you know, you can get large um, and tradable disparities in the price of the same coin, right, on different exchanges, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, because of the structure of the market, yeah. very dispersed, very decentralized, lots of different venues, but Bitcoins are fungible, right? So you can, you can if you've got the right expertise, and this is where the quant comes in and the processing power sure. comes in, this is where Rob's expertise um, com comes in, um, uh, but, you know, you can see that arbitrage. Um, you can see how you can take advantage of, of that arbitrage. Now, in 10 years' time, I'd be very surprised if these strategies worked, right? Yeah, Over the next couple of years. It's a very short time. Yes. Sorry. But you're also taking a credit risk in the exchanges, presumably. That's right. You absolutely. absolutely. Yes. Yeah. But this is this is an orthogonal credit yeah. risk. This is an orthogonal risk. This is an, we're also taking a, a, a risk that um, uh, uh, an earthquake um, rips open California, right? Yeah. Um, that's another risk that we're taking, right? Um, uh, we're actually taking, um, uh, you know, in some of our kind of litigation funding, for example, we're taking a risk that um, uh, uh, the, the the funding of cavity wall insulation claims in the north of England um, uh, gets gets wiped out for some reason, right? Because there's some regulatory change in the, and actually the, the, the bills are going, right? So we're taking all the, all the we, we're, we're taking, there's a tail risk in every single thing you do. Right. Right. Regardless of what you choose, the S and P fell by eighty six percent in the early nineteen thirties. Right. The uh, the topics, the Japanese market fell by ninety seven percent in nineteen forty five. Right. After the big bombs. Right. Ninety seven percent. Right. So that's your tail. That's your one in a hundred year event for yeah. equities. Right. Ninety seven percent. Right. Um. So everyone's got a tail. Now, if we can understand the tails in our different strategies, 
and we can understand that they don't, for example, the credit risk, a crypto exchange goes down, blows up the credit mar- the, the, the crypto market, it's not going to have anything to do with the um, uh, the, the, the reinsurance portfolio. So it's going, the, to, it's going to hit you by 1% or 2%, but it's well, not going to cut exactly. I mean, That yeah. would probably hit by a bit more than that, but you'd probably be talking about 5 to 10%, right? Which, which wouldn't be fun, right? But it's not yeah. going to sink the ship, right? Whereas a 60-40 portfolio, a Great Depression, could potentially sink the ship, no. right? Yeah. And that, so that's, that's where, I said, that, that's kind of our, our way of dealing with this uncertainty. And even a classic kind of, you know, fund of hedge fund type portfolio, at one point, you know, I know it's slightly antiquated now, was a bit this panacea to the 60-40, you know, just add 20% to a well-diversified fund of hedge funds. Well, my previous point is they're extremely highly correlated. So actually, the, the risks you're exposing yourself to, if the equity market tanks by that one in a hundred year event, guess what happens to all these event-driven macro and, oh, no, hang on, we're doing kind of, you know, all kinds of fancy stuff in the long-short market, you're going to get hit. Sure. And do you have any gold? Um, not in the fund. Not in the fund. Oh, it's good enough for your PA, but not good enough for your clients. That's an interesting <laughs> one. Well, actually, I mean, um, good enough is the wrong word. Um, you know, we, we, you know we, we charge fees, right? Um, why does someone need to pay us to buy gold for them? Right? They can buy gold. Right, they can buy equities. That's one of the another reason why we don't have any equities. Right, lots of reasons, but another you don't need to pay us to go and get your equity exposure as well. We kind of think basically all of this stuff is equities. Equities. So we call it equities in disguise. Right, you put together kind of you know textbook and in inverted commas hedge fund portfolio. It's all going to correlate in the tails. You look at all these; they were all down in March twenty twenty. They're all down in you know um, autumn two thousand and eight. There was it was equities. It was equity. You're taking equity risk and you're paying kind of fees for. Why do you need us? Why do you need to pay us to do that? And, and the answer is you don't. We don't take crypto beta. I mean, the crypto we do is arbitrage. It's pure arbitrage, right. right? We don't take crypto beta because you can get, if you're interested in crypto, go and get crypto. That's fine, right? But the kind of stuff that we invest in, um, that we do put in the portfolio, um, it, it's actually pretty hard to find. It's certainly very hard to process. And by the way, Rob and I are, are investors in our own fund, right? So it's certainly good enough for us. No, no, right? I'm, I'm, te- <laughs> I'm teasing, I'm teasing. And do you have any supply chain finance? Yes. And you obviously looked at Greensill. Oh, yes. I read your stuff on it as well at the time, which is I, fantastic. I, yeah. And I saw actually in Popular Delusions that you did reference yeah. me and Mark. Yeah. And, and you spelt the name of my company wrongly because you called it beyond the balance sheet, not behind the balance Ooh. sheet. But I'd already invited you. <laughs> so it was too late to cancel when I noticed that. But the, 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 I'm sorry quite, about that. It was quite a don't we? Don't we? I, but it was quite an extraordinary story because when we originally wrote about that it was in the <laughs> summer of 2020 and nobody was interested. Mm-hmm. And then everybody was suddenly very interested when it all went pear-shaped. Yeah. But what I don't understand, I don't know if you've got any observations on that, and we'll finish after this, but um, Gupta is still in business. Yeah. And people were still lending him money. Yeah. I mean, what am I missing? Yeah. Is it just there's so much money in the world? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we finish, um, we close always by asking people, if you were going to recommend somebody to come into your industry, young person coming into your industry, um, what what book would you recommend they read? Rob, have you got a favorite book that you that you oh, like to... So many. Which one? <laughs> well, you can, you can have more than one. 
Yeah, I presume actually there was there was one book that definitely had a big influence on me, which I read pretty early on, and that was you know Jack Schwager's book on market <laughs> wizards. Mm. There's two of them, I think. Is that right? It's, well, there's been several actually. Yeah, yeah and and those yeah. early those very early ones, which just interviewed, you know, money managers at the end of the day, yeah. traders, and I remember just reading those and just thinking, wow, this is fascinating. You know, just um, and that definitely had an influence on me. Mm-hmm. Together with um, Rise Poker, of course. <laughs> Actually, I did at one of the first British hedge fund I worked for. They used to do this wonderful thing, which we'll start doing once called the Wood Grows, which is when you arrived at the company, there were five books on this your is desk. Aspect Capital. Exactly. What yes. were the five books? The five books were the two Jack Schwager books, which I'd already read. Um, Bernstein's book on Against the Gods, the risk management book. The other two escaped me. I think one of them was Lies Poker, and then there was one other one, which we'll, wasn't particularly we'll put it in, memorable. We'll put it in the show notes, or I'll email Anthony Todd and ask him. Exactly. Remind him as well, the other thing he'll always remember is you got a DVD as well, which was that great film um, about the commodities traders. Trading places. Trading places. Thank you. That's the one. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna, Grateful. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask them if you they still do that. How about Dylan? You're a great reader, so you have. Yeah, you I have mean, there's loads it, of books to choose from. Well, I think it's, um, uh, it, it, you know, if you'd asked me this question a year ago or five years ago or ten, you'd get a different answer each time, mm. and, and it does kind of change. But and I can't choose one, mm. um, but I think that. If, if someone was coming in, again, if they were coming to, and again, it depends what they're coming into, right? If they're going to come in to, to, to try and get a job at some quant shop, then they should probably be learning about, um, they should be read a book on, on you know, machine learning algorithms and, and, and Python or, or something like that, right? <laughs> Which may, may not have the same kind of general readership, but I, in broad brush terms, already. <laughs> the, the way, the, 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 you know, I think as part of a financial education, I would say um, there's a book by Sebastian Malaby um, called More Money Than God, uh, and it's um, it's actually a history of hedge funds, right? And it starts out, I forgot the guy's name now, um, the late 1949, long short um, uh, equity, Alfred Jones, yeah. right? Um, it's first, a good book, yeah. Five, right? And it, so it, it starts out with, with his story, with Alfred, um, uh, Jones, the Alfred Jones story, uh, and he was actually, he was long short, he had a different language at the time because the, the you know the language, but he was beta adjusting the long book and the and the short book. He was actually paying brokers not a fixed rate, but on the basis of the 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 um uh, the, the the quality of their recommendations. So they basically got a performance fee on their recommendations. So he was kind of self selecting the actual talent on the on, on the street with his invent with his incentive. So this is a kind of a very very primitive Marshall Wace type thing, right? And he was using some some leverage. He could realise he could and he um so he was a kind of pioneer of 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 of, of hedge funds. Um um and he goes through this kind of so he goes through from these kind of long short managers to the the kind of macro managers um uh, of the nineteen seventies up to you know guys like Soros and then the Tiger funds and and, and this is all very, very interesting, but on a kind of deeper and he goes through quant as well, uh, including Rentec. Um, uh, but uh, the real lesson from that is what we were, th- that you get a very, very vivid portrait of and a very, very clear understanding of by the time you finish reading it is this nature of um, alpha decay, 
you know, this this idea that alpha is is actually incredibly hard to find, and it is ephemeral. Uh, and so what what works in a very, over a period of time is almost guaranteed not to work in the future. And so this was something that really, uh, I, I think everyone needs to read this. You know, I think everyone needs to read that 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 book and everyone really needs to kind of understand that. And, you know, as I said earlier, a, a kind of big kind of kind of core idea that, 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 that we have at Caldwood is, is that it's not about necessarily being smart. It's about being different. Right? You can find people who are doing things which are different from their peers. That means understanding what all the peers are doing, mm. first of all, right? But if you can get, if you say, well, if you've been running a hedge for the last 10 or 15 years, you're probably not a dummy by now, right? Um, if you can actually make a judgment on how different they are, that's actually very, very kind of um, uh, important. So I would say that one. And then I, I think the, um, you know, there's a lot of financial history books around now, um, but the kind of, the original one really for me was um, was Kindleberg's book, um, Mania's Crashes and Panics. And I think just as a, just as a reminder that, you know, you do get these bubbles, you know, every every few years you get them, right? And it, and it just isn't different this time. And I think that that's, you know, I, I find myself reading that quite a lot. Um, uh, and books like it, because as I said, there's a few kind of different financial, but that's a good place to start. And then the, the last one I, I think would be Taleb, because I think that fundamentally as an investor, you are an epistemolo epistemologist, you know, whether you realize it or not, you are spending your time trying to calibrate your own uncertainty. In other words, you're trying to understand the quality of your own knowledge, right? Um, and Taleb just really, really um, blows a hole. To me, when I read it kind of 20 odd years ago, just blew a massive hole in this notion of, 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 of certainty, this notion that you really know much. Um, uh, so I would say probably those three. Taleb, fooled by randomness. Fooled by randomness, yeah. Brilliant. Well, listen, thank you both very much. If people want to find you, where where should they look for you? Website for the easiest place, codocapital.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. It's not on Twitter. Well, it's not, <laughs> very sensibly. Um, and uh, yeah, Twitter or I think LinkedIn or our web, you know, web pages. Okay, well, we'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Thank you both very much. It was a really interesting, enjoyable conversation as I knew it would be. Thank, Thank you. you both for your time. Thank you very Likewise. much. Likewise, thanks very much. Pleasure. Well, we covered a lot of ground and I guess we probably had more questions than answers, but that's what I really like about Dylan. He's one of the most thoughtful analysts around and he always questions the received wisdom. I learned a lot about quants too. We went for a drink afterwards and carried on the discussion, the three of us. And honestly, I could have carried on a lot longer if Dylan didn't have a long train journey home that evening. I hope you really enjoyed the episode as well. If you did or if you didn't, why don't you drop me an email to info at behindthebalancesheet.com. Let me know what you like or what you dislike and what you want to hear more of. Our macro series continues next month with a very special guest who I reckon is one of the three cleverest people in finance. That will make two I've had in the podcast and the third will be on the month after. Don't forget, leave that review in your favorite podcast player and please tell all your friends.